0: Internet-driven America Online, the Virginia company Case helped build two decades ago, would inject new life into the 79-year-old Time Warner, the esteemed New York media and entertainment company he had taken over. The two companies would work together to forge a future when technology merged with media, creating unimagined consumer products like television, only better. Convergence, he called it. One side of the corporate house would fuel the growth of the other. The buzzword, synergy. America Online would promote Warner Brothers movies. Time Magazine would sell America Online subscriptions. AOL would tout new albums by Warner Music Group artists like Madonna and Jewel. The potential for what he believed was the media company of the 21st century was limitless. Except for one thing. Somebody forgot to tell Case the dance was over. Jeff Bukes, the HBO chairman and chief executive, could not contain himself any longer. I'm tired of this, he erupted, glaring at Case. This is bullshit. The only division that's not performing is yours. Every one of us is growing, making the numbers. The only problem in this construct is AOL. Dead silence. No one knew what to say, not even Case. He sat there, poker-faced. The rest kept mum. It wasn't clear yet which side of the divided house would prevail in a roiling internal power struggle. America Online or Time Warner? AOL, though it had lost some of its luster, was still the overlord of Time Warner. Bukes, however, had just uttered what some of his colleagues had been muttering about for months. The problem was America Online, not Time Warner. This is from the introduction of Stealing Time, Steve Case, Jerry Levin, and the Collapse of AOL Time Warner by Alec Klein. One of the first things that jumps out when reading this book is just how much of a time capsule it is. The bulk of the story takes place only about 20 to 30 years ago, and already you practically need a compendium to know what some of these busted.coms are. I don't know if anything from this book will even make sense in 50 years, except for maybe Microsoft and probably Time Warner as well. The absolute durability of Microsoft is made even more impressive when you peer back into this period of speculation and excess. Charlie Munger said something about how the nature of business is failure. I looked for the precise quote, but I I couldn't find it. But as I read and reread this book, it just made me think about how many companies today won't be around 20 years from now. The author of the book was a Washington Post columnist at the time who found himself in the middle of a story when he began reporting about some accounting irregularities at AOL. Klein does an amazing job of breathing life into the supporting cast of characters. He creates these mini biographies that span multiple pages, and he provides a real feel for who these people are, or at least who he portrays them to be. I feel guilty trying to summarize certain parts because he just goes into such brilliant detail. As the title indicates, the two major figures in the story are Steve Case and Jerry Levin, the CEOs of AOL and Time Warner, respectively. This story begins well before these two are involved, however. The story of AOL begins with a man named Bill von Meister. Von Meister was a serial entrepreneur in the 70s and 80s. He's almost this unsuccessful Elon Musk or Richard Branson type. He has big ideas, he's ahead of his time, but things don't quite work out for him. He's kind of eccentric, he parties more than he should, but he's Very successful at getting funded by venture capitalists. In 1979, he launches this online service called The Source for providing news and exchanging messages. Ultimately, The Source doesn't go anywhere, and his next big idea is the home music store. He has an idea where satellites are going to send music to people's stereos, and then the music will be recorded onto tapes on demand. It's 1981, and he has a deal to license music with Warner Brothers for his home music store. But then Warner Brothers backs out. They say that this is going to kill record stores, and they want people going to the stores and buying albums. Von Meister complains and says that they had a deal. But at the end of the day, there's really nothing he can do. So to make it up to him, Warner Brothers says that he can do something with Atari, which Warner Brothers now owns. In 1983, von Meister starts a new company called Control Video Corporation. He develops a modem for the Atari 2600 so that games could be downloaded to the console. The idea is that the modem is going to cost $60 and the games will cost $1 per session. He raises some venture capital. And one of the people most involved in the project is an investment banker named Dan Case. Quote, Perhaps, however, there was a hint of Steve Case's future in business. As a child, he and his older brother, Dan, started a limeade stand. Later, they went door-to-door selling greeting cards and garden seeds. They built a corporate structure of sorts with a holding company called Case Enterprises. Eventually, the family started calling Steve's bedroom his office. Dan was the front man, the dynamic salesman who did most of the talking. Steve careful and reserved, preferred the quiet, detached task of handling the back operations, unquote. I do find it interesting that so many really successful people like Warren Buffett, Mark Cuban, Ross Perot, ran lemonade stands or had paper routes or sold things door to door as children. I don't think just making a child do that sets them up for success necessarily, but I suspect that when a five-year-old wants to do those things on their own, they're probably just wired more for business. Anyway, the official story according to company lore would be that Von Meister had really hit things off with Steve Case while they're out at dinner with his brother Dan. They apparently both saw eye to eye on how video games and computers were the future. Von Meister apparently asks Dan if it's okay to hire Steve as a consultant and the rest would be history. But what had actually happened according to people who knew better was that Dan Case had just given Von Meister millions of dollars and was now the largest investor. His brother Steve had been working for management at Pizza Hut but didn't have any special insight into video games. Nevertheless, Dan called Von Meister and asked if he would hire Steve and find a job for him. Von Meister basically has no choice but to give Steve a job. People at the company start referring to Dan Case as uppercase and Steve Case is naturally lowercase. While Steve may not have been taken very seriously at first, his advice to Von Meister is actually pretty good. Case tells Von Meister they need to start thinking about barriers to entry so other competitors can't get into the business. Case points out potential privacy concerns. He also tells Von Meister that the perception of the product is almost as important as the product itself. Case also sees that the modem is just the beginning. If it can be connected for downloading video games, why not stocks, email, pictures, etc.? Unfortunately, the the video game industry craters in 1983 and doesn't really recover until the Nintendo becomes popular in 85, 86. In this environment, the modems were a total bust. They couldn't even be salvaged for scrap material because it would cost more to ship them than what they'd get back in return. Von Meister had spent $20 million to generate $40,000 in revenue, and almost half of that $40,000 is money that he makes from flipping a hot air balloon that he had purchased for advertising. Investors were extremely restless, to say the least. One of the investors asked a close friend of his named Jim Kimsey if he will come on as a consultant and basically babysit Von Meister to make sure he doesn't set any more money on fire. Kimsey was a tough guy who had been kicked out of high school but ultimately found discipline and order at West Point. Quote, there he learned that there were three answers to every question. Yes sir, no sir, and no excuse sir, unquote. When he came back from Vietnam, he had a few thousand dollars. He bought a vacant building and rented it out. A tenant was renovating an area to make a bar, but he ran out of money and Kimsey finished the project and opened his own bar. He did well for himself and opened other bars, and Kimsey finally, suddenly finds himself a wealthy man. When Kimsey agrees to assist with Control Video Corporation, he is determined not to be associated with a company that goes bankrupt. As criticism of Von Meister continues to mount from the investors,
1: Von Meister walks away, and Kimsey suddenly finds himself CEO. Kimsey
0: was only managing the company as a favor, though. He is already wealthy and wants to get back to having fun, not dealing with this struggling company. It reminds me of when Buffett finds himself in charge of Solomon and wants to get out of there as soon as possible. Also, Kimsey doesn't intuitively understand the company he's been put in charge of. But Case, he lives it and breathes it quote Case had a maniacal devotion to this it was his life he is a nerd an inward-looking person he likes to communicate by email he doesn't even like to talk on the phone Unquote. in may 1985 control video corporation changes its name to quantum computer services incorporated it was just a combination of buzzwords that sounded impressive in the 80s basically Von Meister died of metastatic melanoma ten years later, in 1995. While in the hospital, he told his sister that if he made it out, he was going to show the hospital how to do things better, which sounds exactly like Steve Jobs during his liver transplant, if you've read the Walter Isaacson biography of him. Quantum takes von Meister's ideas and starts to move things forward, where he and Case had seen them going. They modify the gaming con the gaming modem concept to create software that will let people get news updates and communicate with each other. People would pay $10 per month plus $6 per hour to use their service. The quantum computer software interface is really clunky though and isn't very user friendly. There's a company PlayNet whose software is much better, but the company is struggling. So like Bill Gates buying MS-DOS, Kimsey comes in and licenses PlayNet software for $50,000. On November 1st, 1985, they get the network fired up and have 100 people logged on. In January 1986, Quantum has 10,000 subscribers, and by year-end, they have 50,000 subscribers. Quantum is still struggling to get by financially despite its growth, and Kimsey is being harassed by creditors. Kimsey, the Army veteran, wasn't terribly moved. He'd survived Vietnam. Nothing intimidated me after that, he said. I was still alive. Besides, he was an expert in kickboxing. What were the creditors going to do? Hurt him? Actually, he reckoned he could abuse the creditors. In a calm voice, he explained that if they continued to harass him about the unpaid bills, this is what he was going to do to the little company. I'll bankrupt it. And you'll get zero. Absolutely zero, unquote. By 1988, the quantum online world has started to take shape. There was a casino to play poker, an online bar where people would talk to each other while they drank in front of their computers, and of course, there were chat rooms to talk about sex. Quote, "Maybe it was inevitable. Leave people to their own devices, cloaked in virtual anonymity, and they gravitate towards sex." Unquote. During this time, Case is described as painfully shy and incredibly boring. He's noted to be a terrible public speaker. He shuns the spotlight in favor of the back office. Quote, Steve Case wasn't brilliant in the way of Bill von Meister, who could envision whole new industries being born out of thin air and someone else's money. Steve Case wasn't a swashbuckling entrepreneur like Jim Kimsey. Steve Case was something less glamorous. He was smart, very smart. But most of all, he rose in prominence at the company because beneath his quiet exterior, he had a plodding, methodical, relentless way about him. He worked hard, unquote. It was clear to everyone at the company that Kimsey was grooming Case to be his successor. In 1988, Quantum strikes a deal with Apple to develop an online network for the Apple II and Macintosh. There are some disagreements, though, and the deal ends up falling apart. The board's really upset about this and wants someone's head, so they decide that they're going to fire Case. Kimsey steps in and says, that's completely ridiculous. They've invested all this time and money in training Case and preparing him to be the next CEO, and now they want to fire him because the deal fell apart? The board obviously backs down, though. Quantum decides that they're just going to take the product they were making for Apple and release it themselves. Case holds a contest to see who who can come up with the best name for the new product. The winner, America Online. In 1991 Case was promoted to president and then CEO while Kimsey remains chairman. That year they had about 150,000 subscribers and 20 million in revenue. They changed the name of the company once again. It's now gone from Control Video Corporation to Quantum Computer Services Incorporated and now America Online. The next step was to take AOL Public, which takes place March 19, 1992, and raises $66 million for the company. In April 1993, a marketing executive named Jan Brandt has the idea for a direct mailing campaign. She discusses the idea with Case, who is underwhelmed. He doesn't think it's going to do much, but tells her that she can try. Thus begins the blanketing of the U.S. with AOL disks containing free hours of network time. They said that a 1% conversion rate on the mailers would have been successful, but they end up getting nearly 10% of all recipients to try out the network. By the end of 1993, AOL
1: would have almost 500,000 subscribers. They also now have Bill Gates' attention.
0: He wants to buy the company or outcompete it. Case and Kimsey go to Washington State to meet with Gates. During this time, Paul Allen has been buying up AOL stock, so they don't know if Gates is planning some sort of hostile takeover. Right when they get there, Case just blurts out that they're not for sale and that they'll adopt a poison pill strategy, strategy to prevent Microsoft from buying AOL. Gates gets a sense that pursuing a takeover of AOL is not going to be worth the effort. Back at AOL, they use this as motivation. Microsoft is coming for us. It's David versus Goliath. At the beginning of 1995, AOL has around 2 million users. Again, this is the time frame that Von Meister will be dying from cancer. There's very little that I could find about Von Meister, but I like to imagine that he was happy that one of his ideas had flourished like this. At this point, Microsoft is most concerned about losing market share to Netscape. Since Netscape is the portal to the internet, there is a thought that Netscape could become its own operating system of sorts as the web continues to grow. Microsoft makes a deal with AOL to pre-install their software on every desktop in exchange for AOL using Internet Explorer instead of Netscape. So now AOL will no longer need to send out millions of CDs. The architect of this deal is an executive at AOL named David Colburn. He joins the company in 1995 and is a pivotal figure. His official title is President of Business Affairs, and he oversees a group of about 100 dealmakers involved in online advertising deals. Quote, Colburn came to embody the brash dot-com culture that pervaded the entire industry, unquote. There are numerous stories throughout the book about Colburn being rude and reducing people to tears just because he can. Quote, Ted Rogers, a former Washington Redskin, thought he had faced terror on the gridiron. But that was before Colburn beckoned Rogers, then a new member of his deal team, outside AOL's fifth-floor boardroom in early 1999. Colburn had just emerged from a meeting of OPCOM, the operating committee of senior executives chaired by Pittman, which was still underway. With other top executives within earshot, Colburn relentlessly screamed at Rogers for a paperwork mistake, getting the wrong AOL executive signature on a particular deal. The berating became a water cooler legend. If Colburn could decimate Rogers, a 250 pound 6 foot 2.5 inch former linebacker, what about the rest of his crew? Maybe I deserved it, Rogers said. I don't know. I felt completely demoralized because it was my first deal. Rogers, a gentleman despite his football aggressions, couldn't stomach the Colburn way. After only 14 months, he quit his AOL job in May 2000. Unquote. Colburn is also a symbol of excess at AOL. Quote, Colburn and his prodigious parties became industry lore. They even made it into an episode of HBO's popular sitcom, Sex and the City, when Samantha, one of the main characters, was hired as the publicist for a wealthy girl's bat mitzvah. After Colburn learned of this apparent reference to his own familial indulgences, he screamed, he cursed, and then he called up a big way at his sister cable network and ordered 50 copies of the episode, unquote. Another important figure would also join the company company in 1995, Meyer Burlow. Burlow was in charge of marketing and would lead the transition from a subscription-based model to an advertising-based model. The programmers, along with Steve Case, think the idea of advertising on the Internet is crass. Quote, almost from the start of Burlow and Colburn's tenure in 1995, AOL faced a threat to its very existence stiff price competition from other Internet service providers. In late 1996, AOL responded by abandoning the hourly fee that it had been charging customers, replacing it with a flat flat rate monthly charge. Users, however, began to spend more time online, taxing AOL's network and eating into its profit margin. That's where Colburn and Burlow came in. AOL set its sight on getting companies to buy ads To promote themselves on its vast online network. In 1995, as AOL approaches 4 million members, Kimsey steps down as chairman after coming to lend a hand some 13 years earlier. He would leave a billionaire. In 1997, AOL has 10 million subscribers. The market cap stands at 15 billion in April 1998. By the end of 1998, it is going parabolic, reaching $63 billion.
1: In the late 90s, the dot com mania is in full swing. Companies are flush with venture capital cash
0: and are looking to promote themselves. At this time, there are few places better to advertise than AOL. Four out of five Americans were accessing AOL in the 90s, either through AOL directly or through another one of their sites like MapQuest or moviephone Quote, AOL dealmakers came to understand that they could make or break a dot com just by picking which one to do business with. I would basically pick the winner of an industry, their stock would go up, and they'd be instantly rich, and they'd do anything for me. Unquote. Some of the AOL staff would even buy stock in the companies because they knew that signing an advertising deal would practically guarantee a profitable trade. Some startups, like HomeGrocer.com, for example, paid so much in advertising fees to AOL that they could no longer afford to operate. Another observation from reading this book is just how many ideas from the dot com era have been recycled as viable business models now that the internet infrastructure is there to support them. In addition to unsavory business practices, there's stories of company officials. Snorting lines of coke in public at a Super Bowl. There's parties in Vegas with high-priced call girls. There's this sense of establishing mutually assured destruction. But the main thing keeping everyone together is the stock. Everyone has stock options, and everyone at the company is getting filthy rich during the late 90s. And the focus is on driving up and maintaining the stock price. The culture of the company is primarily driven by Colburn and Burlow. There's hyper aggressive behavior and competition over everything. When two VPs, for example, are promoted and get new offices, one of them thinks the other's is a little bigger and he measures the rooms. When there is, in fact, a size difference, Quote, walls were moved, and his office was reconfigured to make it as large as his counterparts. It became the business affairs way. Yield nothing, no matter how small. Unquote. This reminds me of how Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger talk about envy. At the 2006 Berkshire meeting, Buffett noted, quote, it's a very interesting phenomenon that you can hand somebody a $2 million bonus. And they're fine until they find out that the person next to them got two million one, and then they're sick for the next year." Unquote. Dealmakers were no longer negotiating. they were just making demands. Quote, "We're AOL. We can screw people. We will squeeze every last dime out of you because of who we are." Unquote. Skipping ahead: quote, "By late 1999, many companies seeking to do business with AOL were no longer viewed as potential partners. They were a target to be used. The first order of business was for AOL dealmakers to find out how much money the dot-coms had raised in venture capital funding, then try to extract as much as possible from them in online ad deals. Informally, AOL's goal was to get a minimum of 50% of a dot-com's venture capital funding, AOL was typically dealing with naive 20 to 30-year-olds who had never negotiated a deal before, and AOL would just abuse them. They would often make a sales pitch and purposefully have a slide with one of your competitor's logos to make it look like if you didn't do a deal with them now, then AOL was ready to make a deal with your biggest competitor. Low-level AOL sales executives would also insist on dealing directly with a company's CEO so someone couldn't say they had to go check with their boss. The client CEO and lower-level AOL executive would then come to an agreement, at which point the AOL executive would say their higher-up has a problem with the agreement and the client needs to make some concessions. AOL executives would also sometimes make officials from other companies sit around for hours just to remind them that they weren't important. The bruising techniques and negotiations left a string of financially hobbled dot-coms
1: that eventually couldn't pay their bills. Many would die soon. Soon, AOL began
0: using its inflated stock to acquire other struggling dot-coms. By 1998, it had bought CompuServe and Netscape. AOL is still very concerned about Microsoft at this time. If one word describes why AOL evolved in the acquisitions and mergers it did in the 1990s, the word was
1: Microsoft.
0: Microsoft isn't the only concern, though. AOL sees that subscriber growth is slowing, and they need to diversify their revenue sources. Case's calculation was that the internet sector was already overvalued. There was too much hype. Other internet firms, he told the group, were little more than smoke and mirrors. Few were even profitable. And when the public made that discovery, it would collapse on AOL, buckling its own stock, AOL looks at multiple takeover candidates, including eBay and Amazon. AOL even makes a $100 million investment in Amazon in 1998. I couldn't find out what happened to this investment. If they had just held this, though, which is much easier said than done, It would be worth almost $80 billion at the time of recording this in 2023.
1: And that would undoubtedly be one of the best investments of all time. They also consider buying AT&T or Sprint with the idea that controlling a telephone company
0: would make sense considering the increasing number of people dialing in to use AOL. Quote, Sprint and AT&T, however, weren't terribly sexy. They were, after all, telephone lines. Media companies, on the other hand, were sexy. Columbia Pictures, News Corp, Viacom, Disney, these were glittering companies packed with appealing assets. Movies, music, magazines, they had mass appeal. They were global, unquote. Skipping ahead, quote, Columbia Pictures was owned by Japan's Sony. Out. Rupert Murdoch wasn't about to give up control of his news corp. Scratch that. Viacom wasn't interested. Disney would have made an appealing prospect, the AOL men thought. Its movies and ABC ABC television network would nicely complement AOL's internet presence. But behind the amiable smile of Mickey Mouse was the roar of Disney's chieftain Michael Eisner. Would the powerful CEO consider himself part of another company unless he was controlling it? AOL put out some feelers. The answer, stay away. By process of elimination, that left one media company standing, Time Warner, and what a company it was. It boasted the impressive entertainment assets of Warner Brothers, along with publishing, television, and music empires. But it had something else that AOL coveted even more. Cable lines. Unquote. At Time Warner in the late 90s, there is a sense that its stock is going nowhere while these high-flying internet companies are soaring. Time Warner's CEO, Jerry Levin, feels that they need a new strategy for the future. Quote, Gerald M. Levin's ascension to power after pulling off a palace coup against his boss and benefactor is a well-documented tale at Time Warner. Many of his past and present lieutenants fired, passed over, or surviving feel betrayed by him. And much of the rank and file, which has lost countless millions of dollars in retirement savings from the company's declining stock after its takeover by AOL, places the blame squarely on Levin's narrow shoulders, Growing up in the 1940s, Levin describes going to the movies every Saturday and watching TV all day. It makes me wonder if parents had the same frustration and concern about that as they do today with things like TikTok and Instagram. Levin joins Time in 1972 and helps convince Time executives to invest in a satellite service that made HBO available to cable television systems nationwide. In the 1980s, both Time and Warner Communications were looking for ways to grow and diversify in the evolving media landscape. Paramount becomes interested in taking over Time, and in order to help fend off this unwanted acquisition, Time purchases Warner Communications for $14 billion, which makes it too big for Paramount to swallow. This is similar to what AOL is doing when it's buying Netscape and CompuServe in the 90s
1: as the threat of Microsoft looms. The merger combines Time's strong publishing
0: background with Warner's extensive entertainment assets. Foreshadowing identical issues that will emerge after the AOL Time Warner merger, there is an immediate culture clash between the Time executives and the Warner executives. The CEO of Warner Brothers and the CEO of Time would become co CEOs of the new Time Warner. In 1992, Stephen Ross, the CEO from Time Warner, or excuse me, the CEO from Warner fell ill,
1: leaving Time's Nick Nicholas to run the day to day. While Time's Nicholas is on vacation, Levin essentially organizes
0: a corporate coup with the support of the ill Warner CEO and ousts Nicholas. Quote, It was like something out of Shakespeare, with Levin playing the jealous Iago to Nicholas's oblivious Othello. Over the years, Levin had been surpassed by Nick Nicholas, a more skilled corporate tactician. And yet, Nicholas kept Levin around, ignoring the heeding of advisors who feared that Levin's apparent fidelity and meek bearing were a charade. Levin would go on to consolidate power, and in 1996, he pulled off another major merger by buying Ted Turner's Turner Broadcasting System. In 1997, Levin's son was murdered in. New York City. He was kidnapped and tortured for his ATM card by a former student. It was a gruesome murder that was all over the tabloids, and understandably, Levin was never the same after that. I'm always struck by a line from the show Six, Six Feet Under about how There's a term for a wife that loses a husband, and a husband that loses a wife, and children that lose their parents, but there's no term for
1: a parent that loses a child because there's just no way to put that sort of sorrow into words.
0: Much in the same way that Steve Case shuns attention, isn't approachable, and people can't get a good feel for what he's thinking. After his son's murder, Jerry Levin develops the same aloof sort of persona. As AOL is becoming one of the biggest names in the growing online space, Time Warner is struggling to figure out how to take advantage of its digital opportunities. In 1994, it planned an interactive cable system called the Full Service Network. Customers would buy a set-top box and hook it up to their TV, and through the device they could then shop, order food, or rent movies. The problem was the technology wasn't there to do any of this on an economical scale yet, and the set-top boxes would cost as much as $5,000. Time Warner then shifts and focuses on creating this website called Pathfinder that is going to function as a repository for all their different properties. Quote, Divisions within the company battled over which one would get displayed on the Pathfinder homepage. People Magazine would scream that it wasn't getting enough exposure. Money Magazine would yell it wasn't getting enough space. The Pathfinder people caught in the crossfire would try to explain there were only so many slots. Unquote. There was no real strategy for monetization, and ultimately the, the site shut down in 1999. The failure of Pathfinder would be one of the factors pushing Time Warner towards AOL. As an interesting side note, the head of the, the head of Pathfinder was Walter Isaacson from Time, the same Walter the same Walter Isaacson who did the Steve Jobs biography, and the
1: upcoming Elon Musk biography there's a sense that maybe the digital
0: transformation at Time Warner can't take place from within Levin meets with the CEO of Yahoo and discusses options AOL is the biggest name in the industry though and Levin sees HBO in AOL and he sees himself in Steve Case In September 1999, Case and Levin begin some informal discussions. And in October, Case proposes a formal merger. Case tells Levin that Levin can be the CEO. Case doesn't even want the position. Case wants to be chairman. For Time Warner, AOL represents an opportunity to finally make a successful transition into digital. Case and Levin outline all the various opportunities for cross pollination and synergies between the various divisions of the company. However, it's not all positive. Quote, Case and Levin could not agree on some of the most fundamental issues. How would the company be organized? Who would get which senior job? What, for that matter, would the company be called? Everything was considered TW AOL, Time Warner AOL. American Time Warner, Levin made the final call, which made his own company secondary, AOL Time Warner, Levin just feels that this was the option that sounded the best. Levin also agrees to abandon the Time Warner stock in favor of AOLs, which is far more liquid. At this time, AOL has a market cap of roughly $160 billion, twice that of Time Warner's. AOL is the 10th largest company in the U.S. at the time. AOL wants an exchange ratio of 60-40, but an executive at Time Warner comments that AOL's stock, quote, has a lot of fluff, unquote. If the companies combined, Time Warner would be generating about 80% of the revenue, despite Wall Street putting a much higher multiple on AOL. AOL had about $5 billion in revenue compared to Time Warner's $25 billion. As such, Time Warner wanted an exchange ratio of 50-50. The two companies are at an impasse and the merger is about to be called off. Levin finally suggests they just do
1: 55-45.
0: This part was very confusing for me, but ultimately every shareholder of Time Warner would get 1.5 shares of AOL despite this 55-45 ratio. 60-40 is 1.5 to 1, but because of the number of shares outstanding, the post-conversion math, the post-conversion math works out to where Time Warner shareholders have 45% of the
1: company and AOL shareholders have 55%. On
0: January 10th, 2000. AOL announces it's going to buy Time Warner for 183 billion dollars in an all-stock deal. When the deal goes before the AOL board, only a single board member raises any concerns. He doesn't like that the deal was announced the night before they're voting on it. He doesn't think AOL needs this legacy media property. He thinks they're doing just fine on their own. Any questions? how well the cultures of the two companies will mesh. But everyone's made up their mind at this point. It's a done deal. Quote, At 41 years old, Case, the obscure Procter & Gamble marketer, pizza flavor tester, low-level functionary at an unknown Virginia video game firm, was suddenly the master of the greatest media company on the planet. Unquote. It's worth remembering that it was just about 20 years earlier, 1981, that Bill von Meister had secured a deal with Warner Brothers for his home music store concept, only to have them renege on the deal and basically tell him to pound sand. Now the company that Control Video Corporation had morphed into all these
1: years later was buying that time Warner. With a merger announced, there is immediate resistance from multiple
0: angles. Disney and Microsoft are two of the largest opponents to the merger, but the ACLU, AT&T, General Electric, Bell South, Verizon, and a variety of other smaller internet service providers are also expressing concerns. AOL and Time Warner think there's nothing to worry about in terms of getting the deal approved because they're in completely different industries. How can there be a legitimate issue when one company is internet-related and the other is media? Quote, the proper stance for coming in to talk to the commission is really on bended knee, strategy-wise. And they didn't do that, said a former FTC official. Unquote. I find it pretty outrageous that because AOL and Time Warner don't supplicate themselves before the FTC, they must therefore be punished. At any rate, Disney wants assurances that AOL Time Warner will be neutral and transmit rival content the same as its own. Quote, Before the merger, AOL had been front and center lobbying the federal government and city officials throughout the country to get them to require cable care, cable operators such as AT&T and Time Warner to guarantee that Internet service providers like AOL would get access to customers served by their cable, cable systems. Time Warner had stood on the opposite side of the argument along with AT&T insisting that first, their cable systems were not a public works project, but a private enterprise in which they had, had invested heavily. And second, the government shouldn't meddle in what was essentially a private business matter. But now, AOL had worked out a deal to buy Time Warner. Suddenly, all of AOL's lobbying for open access didn't seem that important. And could Time Warner continue to argue against open access when AOL, its acquirer, had so adamantly fought for it? Unquote. AOL addresses this contradiction by saying, they never liked the idea of forcing cable companies like AT&T to do anything. They say they're going to voluntarily open up Time Warner's cable lines to competitors. In May of 1997, AOL releases its instant messenger application. Quote, it was a sticky application. The more people used it, the more they came back to it. Kids loved the immediacy of it, the anonymity of it. For them, it was a safe way to interact, to socialize behind the blushless, acne-less face of their unflappable personal computer. For AOL and Microsoft, the emerging technology represented something even more tantalizing,
1: another potential source of big business. That's where the dispute arose, AOL refused to
0: open its instant messaging program to rivals like Microsoft's MSN Messenger. AOL users could talk to each other, but not to people on other messaging services. AOL claimed it was simply a matter of security and privacy which sounds a lot like the rationale Apple uses for maintaining its walled garden. Microsoft would find backdoors in the AOL software they could exploit, and AOL would patch them. This went back and forth numerous times. In May of 2000, Disney ABC gets into a contract dispute with Time Warner. Quote, Disney whispered that if AOL and Time Warner didn't play ball, Disney would make their lives miserable during the merger review before the various regulatory bodies, At 12.01 on May 1st, 2000, Time Warner takes ABC off the air across the nation, affecting some 3 million households. Disney complains that this is a frightening glimpse of what an AOL Time Warner future will look like. Pulling ABC off the air turns into a huge PR nightmare for Time Warner and AOL. The FTC chairman at the time was one of the foremost experts on antitrust.
1: Quote, a theory was emerging. Point one, if Time Warner failed to open its cable lines to competitors,
0: AOL could dominate the internet services in cities served by Time Warner Cable. Point two, if AOL dominated internet service over those cable lines while it also took the lion's share of business among customers who got internet access through DSL lines or traditional dial up telephones, then the combined entity, AOL Time Warner, would have so much market power that it would crush the competition. That brought the FTC to point three. The combined company must be forced to open up Time Warner's cable lines to rival Internet service providers or face a court challenge. Unquote. By October 2000, AOL stock price is at a 52-week low. When Time Warner and TBS merged in 1999, One of the central concerns was how rivals would compete with CNN. The solution then was to require the companies to open up their cable networks to future rival 24-hour news channels. The FTC takes a similar approach with AOL Time Warner and says they're going to have to provide rival Internet service providers with access to Time Warner's cable network. Earthlink is the number two internet service provider at the time, and now Time Warner is going to have to give them access to the cable network they've spent billions building out. Earthlink would still have to maintain its own servers and handle all its own billing, but any structural issues with the physical cable network would be the responsibility of Time Warner. It would be a little like Apple being forced to let Samsung sell phones in the flagship Apple stores. Ultimately, AOL and Time Warner aren't really worried about the FTC. They figure it's actually better for the FTC to try to make a deal than to try to block the merger. If the FTC does try to block the merger and the case goes to trial, the government could lose and would get none of the concessions they've negotiated for. But if AOL and Time Warner agree to give access to their network in exchange for the merger going through, Then everyone gets what they want. If the deal just completely falls apart and is totally dead, then there's no open access deal, and Time Warner could just make a deal with AOL that gives AOL exclusive access to Time Warner's cable network. Facing this decision, the FTC approves the merger five to nothing. The FCC will now have its say as well. As the merger is finalizing, quote, the bubble had clearly burst, but senior management was under enormous pressure to hit the financial numbers and close the Time Warner transaction, which would diversify the revenue base and lower the risk profile of the company, unquote. In order to make the quarterly numbers, the business affairs division under Colburn and marketing under Burlow began to manipulate sales and restructure deals in deceptive ways. In other words, there's a lot of financial shenanigans. Before AOL bought Moviefone in 1999, Moviefone had a lawsuit pending against a gambling company, Wembley. Several years later, the lawsuit settles and Wembley ends up having to pay nearly $23 million to Moviefone, which is now owned by AOL. AOL needs to make An ad deal by September 30th, 2000. In order for it to count in the third quarter, the ad has to run by September 30th. So AOL tells Wembley, instead of paying us 23 million, why not buy $23 million in ads and we'll call it even? Wembley asks what they need to buy ads for, but it turns out that they were launching a Greyhound racing site soon. Wembley doesn't get back to the salespeople at AOL quickly enough, though. So without Wembley's knowledge, AOL grabs artwork from the Wembley website and starts running ads for them before any deal has been finalized. Wembley would ultimately agree to a deal, however. Another situation arises with Purchase Pro, which was an online business-to-business platform allowing companies to sell directly to one another. Quote, AOL agreed to use PurchasePro's software as the technology backbone of AOL's Netscape small business portal, which customers could use by paying a monthly subscription fee. AOL also agreed to sell PurchasePro's software to other companies, earning up to a 50% commission for each sale. But the most exotic feature of the deal was this. AOL earned $3 in performance warrants, for each dollar of revenue it generated for Purchase Pro under their marketing partnership. Unquote. The warrants gave AOL the right to buy shares at $63, but as the overall market declines, they end up revising the deal and the new warrant price is just one cent. With that reduced price, AOL estimated it would earn roughly $30 million in Q4 of 2000 just by selling the stock on the open market. AOL treated this as ad revenue, however. In return for reducing the warrant's exercise price to one cent, AOL agreed to generate $10 million in revenue for Purchase Pro. To do this, AOL paid Purchase Pro $4.9 million, which provided 100,000 AOL users a free month of Purchase Pro service at a cost of $49. AOL also agreed to buy $4.6 million worth of Purchase Pro software. So AOL essentially paid Purchase Pro $9.5 million for $30 million of warrants, netting out $20.5 million. At the end of December 2000, AOL is still short of its ad revenue target, and unless they can run a $15 million Campaign for the Spanish company Telefonica, they're going to miss estimates. Telefonica says they're only going to spend $15 million for a December ad campaign if AOL would make a side agreement to continue running ads worth hundreds of millions of dollars for months beyond December as a bonus. Otherwise, Telefonica wants their $15 million worth of ads spread out over
1: several quarters. This this reminds me of long-term capital management taking every opportunity
0: to exploit their counterparties. And when you behave like that, you can't expect people to line up to help you in your time of need. And so now that AOL
1: isn't a bind, the people they're trying to make deals with are screwing them over. An AOL VP thinks it's Really strange that all these Telefonica ads keep
0: running well past December and starts to inquire about it. He's told that Business Affairs and Colburn have a side deal with Telefonica, and the VP says that they can't do that, and he starts talking with accounting. Accounting ends up adjusting the $15 million so that only $5 million is recognized in the fourth quarter despite all these hoops that they've jumped through to make the numbers. Burlow is this VP's boss and asks him what the hell he's doing talking with accounting. Remember that practically everyone at AOL has stock options, so there is a clear incentive to prop up the stock price. As Charlie Munger says, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. This VP is ultimately forced to resign for not being a team player. Quote, when the company's internal accountant asked him what they could do to prevent future problems, O'Connor, the VP, turned to him and said, you can have the greatest controls in the world, but unless the people doing the deals have integrity, it doesn't matter what the hell you do. Unquote. Again, you can have the greatest controls in the world, but unless the people doing the deals have integrity, it doesn't matter what the hell you do. To paraphrase Buffett, in looking for people to hire, you look for three qualities, integrity, intelligence, and energy. If they don't have the first, the other two will kill you. If
1: you hire someone without integrity, you really want them to be dumb and lazy. The FCC is nearing its vote on the merger towards the end of December.
0: 2000, early January 2001, and Microsoft reemerges to complain about instant messaging. AOL suggests that they'll open up their instant messaging platform should they ever offer advanced services like video conferencing over Time Warner's cable network. The FCC is, is satisfied with this and the deal officially passes on January 11th, 2001. Unfortunately, there are problems between the two companies almost from the start. The promised synergies are not manifesting, and there's an instant culture clash. Think Mad Men and Don Draper on the Time Warner side versus
1: Entourage and Ari Gold at AOL. Nokia talks with an AOL executive about
0: paying $70 million to use one of its phones in the Matrix sequels, which seems like a no-brainer for AOL, but the filmmakers say no,
1: and Warner Brothers tells them not to mess with the creative process. Traditionally, there's
0: been more competition than cooperation amongst the various Time Warner divisions. There's this sense that money in the right pocket is different than money in, in the left pocket. But it's all your money, and you should just worry about the total, not necessarily where it is
1: per se. For example, Warner Brothers charges HBO to show Warner Brothers movies, which to me
0: just seems ridiculous. I feel like this is different than, say, Berkshire having BNSF transport all of its subsidiaries' cargo across the country for free. In, In that sort of situation, you're trading the opportunity to take paid cargo for something free. But with digital media, you can share it back and forth under the same corporate umbrella at no extra cost. So when Time Warner Cable wants to use the Roadrunner character as a symbol of its high speed internet, it makes no sense to me that Warner Brothers should charge them almost a Billion dollars to license it. These are the sort of synergistic forces that will be at work at AOL Time Warner. That's not to say that this merger would have been a good idea or would have worked otherwise. For example, AOL wants to post articles from Time, Time Warner's Fortune magazine. A Time Warner executive says they want to be compensated, while The AOL executive says they're not going to pay for something that's produced in-house. The Time Warner executive points out that it costs money to write the articles. But if AOL Time Warner units are just shuffling money back and forth between each other, then they're not actually generating any new revenue. Once the content is produced, it costs nothing to reproduce it. And if it can be leveraged to increase AOL subscriptions, for example then that makes the parent company more successful. Another example is when the Golf Channel agrees to pay $200 million over five years to have its programming carried on Time Warner Cable. With AOL experiencing a slowdown in subscriber growth and ad revenue, AOL wants to know if it can recognize some of that $200 million as ad revenue somehow. Quote, Although both worked for the same parent company, they still viewed each other as representing two separate businesses with financial interests that did not necessarily coincide, The company email becomes yet another point of contention. AOL Time Warner switches all the employee emails from Microsoft to AOL's email system. The Time Warner executives complain that this may
1: be sufficient for consumer home use, but it is not a suitable email system for the corporate world. With things
0: off to a rocky start at the executive level, it's even more important that the newly merged company hit its anticipated earnings out of the gate. The Time Warner side expects to have a strong performance. They're releasing Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And those are expected to be huge successes, and obviously were. The AOL side, meanwhile, continues to find creative ways to make their numbers. They have another deal with Purchase Pro and are supposed to pay them about $9 million for the free trial month subscription arrangement that they did previously. When AOL actually signs the final agreement, though, they Date the paperwork for April 5th so that they don't have to recognize the expense in the first quarter. But that also forces Purchase Pro to revise its financial statements. Purchase Pro had counted on that $9 million being booked as revenue in the first quarter, and now they're going to have to move it to the second quarter. As Buffett says, you can't make good deals with bad people. In the summer of 2001, AOL makes a deal with eBay to serve as an ad broker to sell eBay's online ad space. But rather than just record its commission for brokering the ad deals, AOL records all of eBay's ad revenue as its own revenue and then expenses everything except their commission. This allows AOL to inflate their revenue without changing the net income. They've
1: Boosted their top line without changing the bottom line. By July 2001, even with all
0: these financial machinations, AOL Time Warner cannot meet the market expectations. Levin feels that if he lowers the financial targets, he would be giving ammunition to those in the company who never liked the merger and wanted to see it fail. By December 2001, the Company has gone from a market cap of $240 billion to about $150 billion. That did not sit well with its largest individual shareholder, Ted Turner. This is a long section, but I thought it was probably the best of these biographical backgrounds that Klein wrote, and I just wanted to read a chunk of it. Quote As a child, Robert Edward Turner III dreamed of becoming a fighter pilot or conquering the world. He's made more progress on the latter. But Ted Turner has spent his life as if pursued by the furies of avenging angels, consumed by one single solitary purpose, living up to his father's great unyielding expectations. Born on November nineteenth, 1938, in Cincinnati, he was... Nine, when his family moved to Savannah, Georgia, where his father, Robert Ed Turner, Jr., ran a successful outdoor advertising company. Ed was less successful in his personal affairs. When he got drunk, which was not infrequent, he took it out on his only son, often beating him with a wire hanger that he had stretched out as a whip. If his son cried, he doubled the beating. It got so bad that Ed's wife could stand it no longer and eventually left him. His son, a restless spirit, was sent off to military boarding school, where Ed hoped to instill discipline in his son. Everything was geared to push his son to succeed, even when Ed withheld affection or when he charged his son room and board when he came home from college. Ted Turner grew up lonely, yearning for his father's affection. And yet he defended his father, saying once, He thought that people who were insecure worked harder. And I think that's probably true. I don't think I ever met a superachiever who wasn't insecure to some degree. A superachiever is somebody that's never satisfied. Unquote. Skipping ahead. Quote, My dear son, he wrote in a letter in 1957, I am appalled, even horrified, that you have adopted classics as a major. As a matter of fact, I almost puked on my way home today. Raging, he went on to say, There is no question, but this type of useless information will distinguish you, set you apart from the doers of the world. His father needn't have worried. Turner never completed his major. He was expelled in his junior year for sneaking a young lady into his room, which left him to go work for his father. It turned out to be a blessing. The father needed the son. Ed, locked in a desperate bout of depression, spent the summer of 1961 in a psychiatric hospital. When a year later, he spent $4 million buying several divisions of another billboard company Turner's firm vaulted to the top of the market in the south but that also plunged Ed into another depression so he checked back into the psychiatric hospital and in haste sold the divisions to a friend in the business on the morning of March 5, 1963 Ed had a fight with his son about the business after breakfast Ed went upstairs and shot himself in the head with a 38 caliber pistol he was 53 his son was 24 Suddenly, Ted Turner grew up. He immediately bought back the advertising divisions his father had sold,
1: and then, like Alexander the Great, he went on a rampaging conquest of the media world. I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful description, and
0: you know, even though it's not directly about AOL and Time Warner, I just, I just, it, it was just too good not to, not to read. Anyway, Levin admires what Turner has accomplished, but he thinks his time has come and gone. And after the merger, Levin doesn't fire Turner, but he just takes away his, his authority and his responsibilities. Levin explains that
1: as part of the new management lineup, Ted Turner will no longer oversee Turner broadcasting. Turner
0: did not fully think ahead to what his new role in the the new company would be and fails to use his leverage as the largest individual shareholder to ensure that he still has the job that he wants when all is said and done. Quote, Levin Associates said his biggest mistake was not finishing the job when he marginalized Turner. It was like leaving a wounded man to die only to see him recover and seek revenge, As time goes on, tensions build between Case and Levin. Levin's CEO, but Case is offended that Levin doesn't even involve him in the company's strategies. At the end of 2001, Levin single-handedly pursues a bid to buy AT&T's cable network. Various board members at AOL Time Warner point out that the merger between AOL and Time Warner was contentious enough to Levin really think that the government was going to be less scrutinizing if they now tried to acquire AT&T's cable networks? Things are not going as expected at the newly merged company, and someone is going to have to take the blame for that. Ted Turner and Steve Case find themselves with the same common goal, get rid of Jerry Levin. Levin. Quote, had infuriated Turner, the company's largest individual shareholder and a loud voice on the Time Warner side of the board, Levin had now also alienated Case, the chairman and most influential voice on the AOL side of the board. Unquote. When crafting the merger, both companies agreed to a provision that required three three quarters of the board to oust the CEO or the chairman. While Case and Turner did not have the required to oust Levin. There was also no support for renewing his contract that was set to expire in 2003. After his son's untimely death, Levin had quietly inserted a clause in his contract that allowed him to depart if he gave six months' notice. Rather than face the embarrassment of not having his contract renewed, Levin decided to exercise that clause. And he stepped down from the company in December 2001 Quote, like a dying man firing off one final bullet before expiring, Levin helped usher in the man who would succeed him atop AOL Time Warner, Dick Parsons. Unquote. When AOL and Time Warner merged, Dick Parsons, who had served as president of Time Warner, and Bob Pittman who had served as president of AOL, became co-chief operating officers. Pittman from AOL had been positioned as the heir apparent. Pittman was tasked with managing the publishing division, Time, all of the Time Warner cable networks such as HBO and CNN, the Time Warner cable system, and of course America Online. Parsons was placed in charge of the company's businesses in film, television, music, and books. Parsons was a lawyer by trade. He ended up working for Nelson Rockefeller in 1971 while he's the governor of New York. Rockefeller ended up becoming a vice president of the United States in 1975. Spiro Agnew, who was Nixon's vice president, had to resign during Watergate, and Gerald Ford then became the vice president. Ford would become president when Nixon then resigned,
1: and Rockefeller was nominated to become Ford's vice president. Parsons
0: followed Rockefeller to D.C., and it looked like Parsons had a future in politics ahead of him. But instead, he comes back to New York City and ends up serving as the first black president of Dime Savings Bank in its almost 130-year history. With his growing success and reputation, Parsons ends up being named to the Time Warner Board in 1991. In 1995, Parsons becomes a full-time employee at Time Warner, becoming president under Levin. Quote, Officially, Parsons was responsible for the media giants, corporate financial activities, legal affairs, corporate communications, and administration, but his real role was to be a loyal aide to Levin. Unquote. Levin, quote, respected Pittman, the AOL president, as a masterful day-to-day operator, which is why he gave him so much operational responsibility over the company. But Levin didn't view Pittman as a leader or a consensus builder, unquote. After taking over from Levin, Parsons extends an olive branch to Ted Turner and extends
1: his contract. He also gets rid of the prohibition on Microsoft's email. On January 7, 2002, Parsons announces AOL Time Warner will be taking
0: a one-time non-cash charge of $54 billion due to changes in the accounting rules regarding goodwill. Companies will no longer be able to amortize goodwill. This had no effect on the company's cash flow, but rather represented AOL's inflated stock coming down to fair values. Unfortunately, that inflated stock had been used to buy Time Warner. Parsons tells everyone that the company is done with synergy, and each division just needs to focus on being the most successful version of itself possible. By June 2002, the market cap of AOL Time Warner was down under $90 billion from $240 billion in January 2001. This is also around the time that the author, Klein, notifies AOL Time Warner that the Washington Post is about to publish the results of his year-long investigation into accounting regularities related to Purchase Pro. As these details come to light, many Time Warner employees who have had their retirement savings practically wiped out because of AOL's plunging stock feel that AOL has conned them. Pittman, being AOL president, was the target of their outrage. Other Time Warner executives are calling for all of the AOL executives
1: who came with the merger to be thrown out. Parsons urges patience. Pittman
0: thinks that he can still turn things around and decides to talk with Parsons, hoping that if he talks with him, Parsons will provide him with some reassurance. Instead, when Pittman tells Parsons that he's not sure if he can keep this up much longer and maybe he's had enough. Parsons tells him, okay, that's fine. And shortly after, Pittman would announce his resignation. Parsons then starts to reshape management. Time Warner starts the process of reclaiming ownership from these outsiders who have tried to buy their company with what feels like counterfeit money. The Time CEO would lead a new media and communications group, which included AOL, Time, and Time Warner Cable. The HBO chairman would become chairman of the Entertainment and Networks group, which included HBO, New Line Cinema, Turner Networks, Warner Brothers Pictures, and Warner Music. These two division heads would report directly to Parsons. Steve Case remained as the only AOL executive in a senior position, but as a non-executive chairman, he had no real power. He could only watch as AOL was absorbed into the Time Warner corporate hierarchy. It was a takeover from within. Pressure mounts for Case to step down as well, but he says he's not responsible for a nationwide decrease in advertising spending during a recession. By this point in July 2002, the market cap was down to around $40 billion. There's been a wipeout of $200 billion in shareholder value. But to be fair, this is not in a vacuum, and even Amazon had lost 80% of its value during the dot-com period. People on the Time Warner side think it's time to get rid of the AOL portion of the company name. Following the Washington Post articles, AWL Time Warner discloses that the SEC had launched launched an investigation into its accounting practices. Less than a week later, the Justice Department had opened up a criminal investigation. Burlow and Colburn lawyer up. Colburn is locked out of his office and fired. Business Affairs is completely shut down and the employees are redistributed throughout the company. Burlo is shuffled aside into a consulting role where he basically has nothing to do. Quote, many at the company felt that Case should take responsibility for the aggressive culture at the online division that resulted in the improper ad deals. In private, Case continued to insist that he had not known anything about those deals. Unquote. Ted Turner feels like it's even worse if Case didn't know what was going on. Turner has watched his Time Warner and now AOL stock sink some 70%, and he is now committed to seeing Case be removed as chairman. Case accepts some blame in so much as he says his attention was on the merger in 2000, and his brother Dan had been diagnosed with brain cancer. He would pass away in June 2002. He says he is ready to be more present now, though. The Time Warner executives are not very receptive to this, however. In October, the company has to restate financials for a two-year period before and after its merger in January 2001
1: because of improperly recorded revenue. On January 12, 2003, Case suddenly announces
0: he's stepping down as chairman. This comes as a surprise to everyone because the board had never tried to bring it up for a vote, and he still had enough board support to avoid being removed. His presence had become a distraction, though, and shareholders, led by Ted Turner, were going to try to vote him out at the next shareholder meeting in May. The motion was unlikely to pass, but it would still be embarrassing. Quote, Levin was gone, Pittman was gone, now Case, the last of the merger architects, was gone too. In less than a week, the board unanimously selected Parsons as the company's next chairman. By late January, Ted Turner said goodbye too. The old maverick had helped push Levin and Case out the door. What was there left to do? Turner, at 64, said he wanted to spend more time on his philanthropic activities. Unquote. That same day, the company discloses another massive goodwill charge of $45 billion in the fourth quarter. The almost $100 billion is the largest annual loss in corporate history at that time. It looks like it still is today. I couldn't find anything larger. Quote, over 20 years, AOL had withstood a withering array of challenges, surviving as a cash-strapped online video firm beating back mighty Microsoft and overcoming the threat of the web. Finally, AOL had succumbed to its own ambition, In the afterword, Klein notes that AOL was later found to be inflating subscriber numbers as well. In August 2003, there was enough momentum to remove AOL from the company name and revert back to Time Warner. The stock symbol was also changed from AOL to TWX. The book was written in 2003, so that's where the story ends, but AOL would eventually be spun off in 2009. Subscriber numbers steadily declined from about 27 million in 2002 to about two million in 2015 when it was acquired by Verizon for 4.4 billion dollars in. 2018 Time Warner is acquired by AT&T for 85 billion dollars. And most recently, AT&T merged Warner Media with Discovery in exchange for a combination of cash and securities. I really enjoyed this book. There's a level of detail and complexity that Klein goes into that I just I could never capture here. It's definitely worth a read the level of financial shenanigans was just incredible and like i said klein just brings a level of depth to the characters and you can tell he just really researched things and i just it's it's a wonderful book
1: um thanks so much for listening